0: Welcome to the Text-Driven Podcast. I'm your host, Timothy Pig, and I'm so glad that you have decided to join us this day and listen to our podcast. At Text-Driven Ministries, you will find our resources to be doctrinally faithful and distinctly Baptist. Our goal is to help you to live a text-driven life. To learn more about Text-Driven Ministries, go to our website, textdriven.org. Uh, Chad, this is for you. Um, uh, Mariah, one of our fifth-grade students, um, asked this question: What does it really mean to fear the Lord?
1: Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, it's a great, <clears throat> it's a great question because that can be easily misunderstood. Um, I have what uh, I would call a, uh, I, I would call it a, having a healthy fear or a healthy reverence. For the Almighty. Let me put it in a fifth grader terms. When uh, I was in the fifth grade, uh, I was an, a horrible, horrible kid. Stayed in trouble in school. I was a, uh, I would fight anybody who wanted to fight. Lost more than I won, but I was just <clears throat> one of those kids. But there was just something about when my father stepped in the room. caused me to uh, gather my thoughts to honor and respect who he was and what he had taught me. And there was a I'll call it this a healthy fear and a holy fear sometimes. Uh, And I think uh, sometimes we can uh, translate that to our relationship with, with our Lord is that we have a heavenly father that is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, who loves us dearly. Mm. Uh, but when we also have a fear of God, it is a, uh, a way of reverencing uh, who he really is. I guess for a fifth grader, that would be the easiest way I would explain that.
0: Yeah, I like how you said, when your dad walked in the room, it changed your attitude. It
1: did. It changed.
0: And we understand that God is always in the room, it changes our attitude. And it changes how we um, approach different things. Um, I got this from several students. So I won't share all their names, but um, anybody on the panel can take it. How would you share the gospel with an
1: atheist? I'd go to where Tom started this morning. Yeah. It's in the beginning, God. Uh, that's probably where I, would, where I would begin that conversation.
2: Else? I That's would say, uh, I'm sorry, Tom. I, I would say, you know, and of course Paul some, sort of did that, uh, you see in, in Acts 17, you know, it, the, but you ask questions, uh, you know, when you're talking to someone who, like, most people won't say they're an atheist, but you might get someone who basically says, I, I don't believe, or they're hostile, but um, you can ask questions like, the creation question is, and it's been phrased many, many ways, is uh, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, why is there, you know, we've used four questions that kind of frame the gospel. Why is there something rather than nothing? What went wrong? Hmm. Why is the world broken? Why is there evil in the world? Like, explain that to me. Uh, is there any hope? Those are the kinds of questions where you just people are, they're thoughtful questions. They're not true or false. Do you believe this or that? It's, tell me why you think there's evil in the world, because that's a very profound question that actually proves the existence of God. You know, why is there something rather than nothing? That's a very profound question, and it doesn't allow them to start arguing with you about evolution. I, I'm, I didn't ask that. I asked, why is there something rather than nothing? And uh, so, I think some questions like that, that at least get a conversation started and and in a way, are planting seeds in a person's life that the gospel is ultimately the answer to.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanna, with, Tom, I wanna come to you about a follow up on that. We live in a society that is not apathetic towards God, it's very anti God. So you're gonna encounter, this is another student, I wanna expand on their question, but you're gonna encounter people who who don't just look at you and say, I don't want to hear what you have to say, but will be very antagonistic, and their beliefs are wrong. Uh, Pastor Willie talked about the offense of, of God there. That sounds like a word. That's a word today, offense, that I don't want to be offended. Don't offend me, right? That's stuff we hear all the time. So the Christianity that's being presented today is Jesus Plus, whatever sin you have, just keep doing it. That's kind of the gospel message today. Just add Jesus into your current sin. So so here's my question out of that. How would you tell someone that their beliefs are wrong? And that also is going to be offensive. So in that concept of offensive, how do you tell someone you're wrong? How do you do that?
3: Yeah, well, I don't think you necessarily need to lead with that. But you need to be prepared always to say that. Um, We had Muslims that came to our church after 9-11 that we'd been witnessing to before. And and, uh, I remember about six or seven weeks in on a Sunday night after the service, after I preached, one of them, who was the most um, studied and serious religious Muslim of all of them, most of them were just kind of cultural Muslims, he hung out after church. He said, I want to talk to you. He said, said, are you... You, you sir, you're saying things that I think are not true. He said, uh, "said Do you believe that Muhammad is a true prophet?" I said, "No, I don't." He said, "Do you believe that Allah is the true God?" I said, "No, I don't." And he he looked at me. and said, "Your words are words of war to me." He said, "I'll never step back in this put back in this building again." And uh, we've maintained a relationship. He's back in Uzbekistan today, and uh, you know we will still communicate, but. Um, it was a moment, you know, where I felt that pressure. Boy, what can I say here? Some would say the moment you draw that
0: line in the sand, his words, you've created war now. Yeah. I will never step back foot in here. Some people would say, well, then, great, I, I have just condemned that person to hell, and I have no opportunity to ever share the gospel with them. Yeah. So you see, so like people avoid offense right. to always keep a door open, and that seems yeah. admirable. It seems but, loving, but
3: you're—it seems loving. It's not loving. I, Adrian Rogers said something I'll never forget. Uh, he said, "I would rather be loving while thought being cruel that I'm being cruel than to be cruel while hmm. having people think I'm being loving." And so explain that out for yeah. us a little bit. How, it would have been cruel for me to say, "Well, yeah, I think you know, Muhammad could be a true prophet or, or give him any hope that his belief system. That was handed down to him. His father was an imam. Uh, that that was right. I mean, how much do you have to hate somebody to keep the the words of life from them?
2: Mm.
3: You know, to, to to know they're on the way to hell, and to let them go there in comfort. You, that's hatred. That's not love. And uh, you, we have to be willing to be offensive. I and mean, what will he preach? The crowds left Jesus. Many who were his disciples left Jesus. They left him. And yet, it would have been unloving for him to have whitewashed or downplayed the seriousness of that message that apart from him, they're not going to know God. They're, they're gonna miss God completely. So we have to be prepared for that. And again, I don't think you have to lead with that. There may be some situations where you would lead with that and not, not be afraid of it, but we have to be steeled enough in our minds about the gospel, what it is, what it's not, and not shave off the rough edges of it at any point. So. One thing I think that's, that I try to get in my own mind, help our folks to, to get together, is don't be embarrassed by anything the Bible says. Mm. Anything the Bible says, just come to terms with it. You may not understand it all, but if it's from God, then you accept it and don't ever apologize for it. Mm. You know, why you're telling me that women can't be pastors? Why, well, that's misogynistic and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Look, we didn't write the book. We're stewards of the book. And so there's any number of issues like that that are going to be offensive. And then another thing I would say to our people, to, to Christians today is don't, don't let anybody convince you that niceness will necessarily win people to Christ. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're not called to be neighbor nice. We're ta- called to be neighbor lovers. And we love our neighbors by telling them the truth. And sometimes, you know, we get this, well, you just need to be more Christ-like. If you're more Christ-like, people wouldn't get upset with you. Well, guess what? Jesus was pretty Christ-like. They crucified him. Yeah. You know, th- this is the way of Christ. And so if you get crucified, just know you're following in the path of your master. And whenever the persecution opposition comes, we're getting just a small taste of what most of our brothers and sisters in Christ for most of history have experienced. God's been so good to us so long here in America that we just kind of take it for granted this is the way it ought to be. Man, we've been living the exception. And now that exception is being slowly eroded from us, and we're getting a taste of what most of our brothers and sisters, most of history, most places have experienced, and so, we need to be prepared for it.
0: So, don't you think that fits? Part of the reason why we go for that niceness is because we don't understand the earlier question is what is the fear of God? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we fear man, we want that man to like us. So, we care more about people pleasing than we do about God-pleasing. So back to Chad's point, if, if we would live with this understanding that God is in the room, and, and like his dad was, and that changes behavior, we wouldn't be leading with niceness, we would be leading with loving truth. And, and I think there's a combination there um, between the fear of God and evangelism, uh, and how our evangelism hinges on us having a fear of God if we do not have a fear of God, we'll have a greater fear of man, and we won't say the hard thing. We won't say the offensive thing. Jesus' offensive statement in John 6 was because he loved them,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and and he came to do the will of the Father yeah. in that. So,
4: well, brother, I, I would say, too, we're, sometimes we approach that question, of like, how, how are we going to share with the atheists? And we're going we're gonna to approach this almost like we're hostage negotiators, mm. right? We're going we're gonna to reason them somehow off the ledge or, or, or whatever. We, have, we haven't been called to be negotiators. We've been called to be prophets, to speak the truth. We're proclaiming the gospel of God, that, that God has liberated the captives through his son. That's and right. your only hope is repentance and turning from sin and turning your faith to the only hope of redemption, and that is is Jesus. We are prophets. So don't don't apologize for the truth of the Scripture, and don't apologize, don't back away from the simplicity of the Gospel. Uh, The Gospel is that Christ Jesus came and died for sinners, according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. One day he's coming to judge the living and the dead. I'm not going to back away from that. With the atheist, and I'm not going to be ashamed of that. With the atheist, it it needs to be told. That's
1: the gospel. You fear that rejection sometimes, but I love the story in Acts five, where uh, these guys have gone before the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and uh, Gamaliel stands up and says, "Look, uh, this guy Thaddeus tried this, it, it it died. This guy Judas tried this, it died. But if this is a move of God," You can't stop it. Mm. And after those guys had been beaten and they were told, do not go back and share the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus still went out all through Jerusalem. In the face of that persecution, uh, they stood uh, for truth uh, in uh, in difficult days. And there are difficult days. Uh, well, we say they are difficult days. Uh, for us, relatively speaking, maybe they are. But for those sharing the gospel around the world, they would think this is child's play what we deal with and call persecution. But uh, we're to stand uh, and be those prophets uh, regardless of what comes.
2: Timothy, could I I jump in here? I know I don't want to bog it down, but this is such an important point to me. Yes. Um, There's a a book out uh, called A Negative World right now. It's very interesting. And it's, you know, any way you classify these things, there's a little maybe uh, you sometimes overstate it. But I think there's a lot of truth that in America, in the last recent history, we've gone from a positive world, the latter part of the 20th century. And by that, he meant where the secular culture looked at, uh, at Christian morals and viewed them positively. Even if they themselves had fallen short, the idea of a man and a woman being married, that was still viewed positively. Then he said there was a neutral world from about 94 to about 14. Neutral world was it's one option among many where there's… That, that, pluralism, live and let live kind of thing, and that now we have entered a phase negative world. That is, the Christian view is now viewed negatively by the, 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 the uh, cultural moment. The reason I think that's significant is I think a lot of our leaders that, you know, had written books and modeled ministry were, were doing ministry in neutral world. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, some of this may have been flawed from the beginning, but in neutral world, there's this huge emphasis on hey, if we could just be winsome, you know, if we could just be nice, if we could just explain what we believe in a way that they wouldn't think we're too weird because we're really not that weird. Well,
0: even in the church growth in the neutral and world, as long as, as my church is more fun than the other one, you have a ton of yeah, options, you know, it's like, our, our music's be better, it's, yep. Yep. it's okay. Yeah. Well,
2: that's the church growth movement was in that world. Yeah. And it, the insidious thing about the church growth movement is that it worked, yep. that it worked enough that people go, see, it worked. Yeah. Uh, but we are no longer in that age. And I think what people are recognizing is now that doesn't, that's not a license to be arrogant or to be, un- we should love sinners and show great compassion because we, we, we are saved sinners. So we're not, this is not a license to be arrogant or to be unkind. But kindness is not going to make people all of a sudden like the gospel. Right. Uh, and we have, so I think the need of this age is clarity. Uh, conviction and courage. Mm. That's what this age Obviously, compassion. But what we are going to have to embrace is we must be clear, we must be convictional, we must be courageous, because that's what, the, what is going to require it. So we are going to have to say some of those hard things, and there's just no way around it in this culture. Yeah. Some of the things we say the Bible, the, the, what the Bible says, when we say it, it is not going to be received well. Mm. So we better get ready for it. Mm, say good. it kindly, absolutely. Say it with love, absolutely. But you better say it. That's right. And you better be clear, and ambiguity is not our friend any longer. Mm. It probably never was, but it is certainly not our friend today.
0: That's good. Well, young man in seventh grade, his name is Christian, said this, uh, this is for um, Scott. Does it make sense for a Christian to take part in cultural things. Um, I was with him when he was writing this question. He's not speaking of necessary political things. He's saying things of this world, uh, whatever that might be. Um, so, it's not necessarily taking part in, you know, policies and things, but but things of the world. Is it, does it make sense for a Christian to
5: take part in cultural things? Depends what you mean by take part. I think Christ needs to be our example in all things that we do. And Christ lived in the world. Christ walked among sinners. Christ talked with sinners. He he spoke the word of God. He he performed signs and miracles. He was among the people. And so I don't advocate a religion that that is a, an asceticism that withdraws from the world. Uh, we're called to be salt and light. We're called to be uh, little Christ's and examples of Christ in those ways. And so what better testimony does the church have than than seeing followers of Christ live out their faith in communities and in neighborhoods and in churches and in our businesses and in our workplaces. We're called to exist together in a community and a culture. And so uh, all of those people come together to make a church. We're all ministers in in the ways that the Lord has called us. And so if you own a business in town, you can be a minister to the people who come and, and are patrons of your your workplace there, if you're a waitress, you can serve those who are around you uh, in a way that honors the Lord and speak a word about him. So I would encourage us as followers of Christ and certainly young children learning to follow the Lord uh, to be public about our faith, to be clear about our faith, and to live out according to our Christian faith in the world around us. The adage though I think is true that we are to be in the world but not of the world. And so we can't we can't embrace the fallenness of the world around us that is hostile or is contrary to the things of God. And for the young people in the room, that's the temptation that you will continue to face for all of the rest of your life is, is just to do this to be cool or just to do this to be popular or just to do this to, to win someone over or to be in the cool crowd. And, and we, we look back to Christ and he was fundamentally countercultural. So we're not outside of culture, but what we believe is countercultural. cultural the, the objective truth we've talked about that a lot uh, this morning, the Bible is objectively true. It's not subjective. This isn't a have it your way world. Uh, what God has given us in his word is true. It's right versus wrong. And we live in a gray world, uh, but really it's a lot more black and white than that. Things are right or they're wrong. And uh, we have those answers in God's word. It's sufficient for knowing how to live according to our life and godliness. And uh, so we're called to be in the world, but to live according to God's ways. And that will make us as followers of Christ naturally unpopular, naturally uh, hated, naturally attacked, naturally persecuted. And, and Christ says that that's for his sake, that, uh, that as the world rejected him, so it will also reject us. And uh, we count that an honor and a privilege to stand true to God's word in the midst of opposition, I believe.
0: So, so here is a follow-up to that. Um,
5: uh, or Dr. Askell.
0: No, no, this is, this is, this is uh, yes, this would it'd be a lot of fun to hear Dr. Amen. Askell's answer to this yeah. question. Uh, so Dr. Askell, in light of that, cultural things, uh, a young person, adult, gets offered to go to a Taylor Swift concert. On a Saturday night. I picked well. <laughs> and Sunday morning is the Lord's Day. And Saturday night's going to concert. is going to get out late. Going to get home. And let's just assume that that person is still, this is a big assumption here, still going to come to church on Sunday. But they're groggy. They're tired. They're exhausted. Their mind's not sharp. All of that. Because they know they're supposed to be at church on the Lord's Day. Should that person take part in the Taylor Swift concert on Saturday if it's going to hinder their clarity of worship on Sunday? No. Okay.
3: I was just
0: excited that Dr. Askell knew who Taylor Swift was, to be honest with you. Hey, I watch football. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
3: No, I mean, this is an I issue. I mean, I think that's an because they're at least going
0: to church on Sunday. We, right, we have understand. many people who take part in cultural things that just say, it's okay to miss on Sunday. Uh, yeah, I understand. But this person's actually they're going, trying. They're trying. and they're trying, but yeah. they're not giving the Lord's day its due. So, how, yeah. I mean, how, help us think through this, because now you just sound like a mean old
3: man. Well, I'm used to that, so that's no yeah, yeah. problem. I mean,
0: <laughs> but, but really, that's, that's what, when we as pastors say stuff like this, they look at us, and yeah, judge I on the
3: base, you, you know what I'm getting at. Right, but, man, there is, there is a mountain of issues underneath that question. <laughs> and uh, a lot of it has to do with the teaching about what a Christian is, what a church is, the Lord's Day, and what, how we are to remember the Lord's Day, and if you even believe that or what that consists of. Because I, we try, to, I try to remind myself and others that the Sunday morning begins on Saturday night. I mean, it, it, what you do Saturday night is going to dictate how things go Sunday morning. And there are exceptions. Things sometimes come up in unusual circumstances. That's fine. But if you have a pattern, as, you know, often happens, I'm sure every church has it. We, we've got it. We've had it. Where people make a pattern of what they do on, sun, on Saturday night by choice, not because of working, not because of things that have come up in circumstantial situations, but by choice. Uh, it, it's a problem, and it will, it will deteriorate their soul. You know, they might be able to tick off the box that we showed up on Sunday morning, but they're not taking full advantage. John, John Bunyan called Sunday the market day of the soul, mm-hmm. the market day of the soul. If we could recover something like that, that man, this, we all complain about time. I wish I had more time. We should have more time to read the Bible. We should have more time to pray. Mm-hmm. God's given us one day a week if we would take it and we, we would have time. But so, you know, there's a whole bunch of theology underneath mm-hmm. that. But I, I would encourage the person and say, "Well, man, it's great that you're going to be diligent to be here, but uh, you realize that it's going to detract significantly from what God has ordained for the welfare of your soul." But juxtapose that,
0: uh, James. I'll come to you just say, ju- juxtapose that to a young boy or girl that has a championship ball game.
1: Yeah.
0: Mom and dad are going to make sure that kid goes to sleep early so that they play well for that championship ball oh, game. Oh yeah, right. Big test, SAT. Mom and dad are going to make sure that kid gets to bed early, has a good breakfast that morning before they go to their SAT. Gathering with God's people is infinitely more important than a championship game or an SAT score.
3: Yeah, every Sunday. Every Sunday. Every Sunday. Yeah, and that's, that's a hard sell in our day. Yes. But it is absolutely right. And, yep. and if we're not teaching that with our kids really young, uh, man, I mean, travel, travel ball teams have been the destruction of a lot of lives. Yeah. We've seen it in our church. Mm. You know, yeah. we've warned against it and seen it happen, and that doesn't anyway. We just seen it, and it's it's tragic. And so, especially with young athletes, yep. to drill in them: Look, man, uh, God gave you the ability to play. You need to honor God. And if they're going to set that game up on Sunday, you tell them hard pass. Not going to do it. Uh, we, we had Jehovah's Witnesses. One one who was a all-star football player, went on to the University of Florida, went to the NFL uh, in Cape Coral. He was Jehovah's Witness. And so he would not uh, violate his holy day of playing. And whenever sometimes he'd walk off the a, a field at halftime because he was strict in how he was going to observe their Sabbath. Wow. Yeah. And they bent all the rules they could because this kid was, a you know, running back. He was great. And uh, I, you look at that and you say, man, they're doing that for a false religion. We're the Christians. Mm. That are willing to stand firm for Jesus Christ
4: That's right. that
3: way. So, it's a good
4: you know, word. I think these issues of priorities are always going to be an issue, whether you're in first grade or or you're, you know, seventy years old. It doesn't matter. Are you are you going to give God the first fruits of your income? Are are you going to give Him the Lord's day? You know, I, I had a guy. I got to lead a guy to the Lord. He was a drill sergeant. Okay, just. Rough guy, uh, he accepted the Lord, and man, he was on fire. But here it came into hunting season, and he texted me from out in the field somewhere Sunday morning, and he said, uh, "He said, brother, would would God be mad at me for turkey hunting today hmm. on the Lord's day?" And I thought, man, here we go. You know. Hmm. I texted him back. I said, well, here's the thing, brother. Turkey hunting on the Lord's day is the same as giving God the bird. (laughs) (laughs) It's either the Lord's day or it's not. Now, that was 10 years ago. And I don't think he's missed a Is he a back Sunday next week? Yeah. So I'm just saying. Yeah. You just got to help a brother out every now and then. In and the
0: days. words of Tom Askell's friend, that was, that was saying something that committed war yeah. against him. So, um, I want to end with this question. And for one, I just think it's a fascinating question. Uh, this is from a fifth grader named Brantley. Um, how much pain did God go through on the cross, and does the world have more pain in it today? You look out, you see the agony of the world and the bloated face of the alcoholic and the twitch of the drug addict, and you just see pain and sorrow everywhere. I think it's a fascinating question, and I think it's how much pain did God go through on the cross, and does the world have more pain. <laughs> Tom, this is for sword and trowel, so come on, yeah, man.
4: Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple of things. One, you know, I appreciate the question. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is God, and that's true. But Jesus is God in flesh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we have to really be careful in how we think about what God in flesh experienced versus God in himself.
0: Well, Let's, let's adjust that. Uh, the pain of Jesus yeah, on the cross okay, to I, the pain in the world. Who yeah. experienced more pain?
3: Right. So if we're, if we're straight on all that, then I forget who it was that said it, but the, the, the soul of his sufferings was the sufferings of his soul. And whenever you come to grips with like Romans 3:23-26 about God set him forth to be a propitiation by his blood, and then go back to that garden where Jesus is saying, "Lord, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me." And what was in the cup? Yeah It's the wrath of God, the yeah. wrath of God against sin that Jesus has taken upon himself. Hmm. And so we tend to focus on the physical sufferings, and those were horrific. But other men went through that. Mm. Nobody has ever gone through the wrath of God poured out in one body for the sins of an innumerable amount of people. How do you you calculate the wrath of God against one sin, one sinner? I mean, it takes eternity. This is what makes hell just. Mm. Our sin against God, the slightest sin against God is so damnable that hell is the only just punishment for it other than the death of Jesus, that he experienced hell on the cross as the infinite Son of God. And if we get that, if we see that, then to think, how does he take the sin of sinners, in one sense the whole world, upon himself and endure God's wrath against that, uh, that's incomprehensible to us. And so we sh- I would say we should never compare our suffering to the sufferings of christ we should always let the sufferings of christ be a paradigm against which we evaluate our own and recognize no uh you know we have not yet suffered uh, to the way that our lord has and we never will because his suffering was infinite it's it's the same way with temptation and other things as well you know we've had these hurricanes and, and when ian blew through a year and a half ago you look out our backyard and we, we have a kind of a forest behind us or a lot of trees and and some of them just snapped in two, 6, 8, 10-inch you know, diameter trees. But every once in a while, you see one that stood.
1: Hmm.
3: And you think, okay, which one of those endured the worst of the storm? It's the one that stood because it didn't snap. And Jesus had infinite capacity as the God-man. And so wow. the temptations we face, you wow. know, we're, we're to, we won't be tempted beyond what we're able to bear. That's true. People say, well, Jesus was God, so he doesn't understand my temptation. No, 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 no. Your temptations are trifle compared to what he experienced because yeah. he never broke. And he, sn- mm. he
0: never snapped. That's right. Wow.
3: And, and it, I think it's that's similar to that on the cross as well. The, the wrath of God, it's incomprehensible. Wow. That's very good. But it's real. It's and we, we just need to remind ourselves of what was in that cup.
2: Wow. That's fantastic. I, yeah, I think we in there.